welcome to today's podcast. Today we're going to be looking at the story Secrets by Bernard McLaverty. As with all podcasts, if you haven't read the story yet, can you please go away and do that for me now before you start to make your annotations because everything will be much, much clearer. If you're ready to begin, make sure you've got your anthology, your pen and your highlighter and we'll start. So Bernard McLaverty was born in Belfast in 1942 and he was an English teacher and moved to Scotland with his family um, in 1975. Now something you want to have a look at in terms of background is the, 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 the religious context. What religions would uh, McLaverty have been exposed to while he was growing up because that has an impact on the story that we're about to read. So Secrets is a story about a young man whose aunt is dying and he reminisces over their time together and about the incident that changed their relationship forever. They used to be incredibly close, sharing stories and hobbies, but when the unnamed boy starts to pry into his aunt's secretive past, the relationship between them is broken. So if we look at the themes that are going to be explored in this story, the first and most obvious one is the theme of secrets. It's in the title there, which leads us on to the thought of guilt as well, which plays quite a prominent role. We're going to be exploring the loss of innocence, the theme of forgiveness, or maybe the lack of forgiveness. We're going to be looking at religion, curiosity, love and relationships, and finally, the theme of loss and bereavement. So the story opens um, with the young man who re- remains nameless, I should say. Um, his great aunt Mary is dying and she's been dying for some days now. Now we get her name. The name Mary is really quite important. Um, it's be very clear to say from right from the from the outset here that the religion of Catholicism is going to be absolutely central to this story. If you're an unfamiliar with the Catholic religion, I would suggest that you should go away and do a little bit of research about it, find out about some of its customs, some of its traditions, um, because as I said, it's it's a really central central pivotal part of this story. So his great aunt Mary has been is dying. And the, the young man has just come back from his girlfriend's um, where he's been studying for his A-levels. So we've got a few things straight away from this. Um, one, he's allowed a girlfriend. Um, so things have changed. You know, people didn't usually, you know, in terms of courting, have boyfriends and girlfriends, maybe when his great aunt Mary was younger. Um, they say that they were studying for their A-levels together. Um, He's at an in-between stage in his life. That time when you're studying for your A-levels and you're right at the end of year 13 and you're right at the end of the course, you're kind of in that transition period between being the child and then being the adult that then goes off to university. Um, Just like his aunt. His aunt is in a transition stage. She's going from life through to death. And further down in that first page, we, we do see that he can still smell his girlfriend's hand cream on on him when he puts his hands to his face which makes me wonder whether or not they were 
just studying or studying at all. I will leave that up to you and to your uh, imagination and skills of inference there. Um, so when he kneels at the bedroom door, okay, so we think about the bedroom. The bedroom is a, a really private place. It's the place where you go, isn't it, when you want to get away from people. And if you, to go into somebody's bedroom, especially if you haven't been invited or if you don't ask, it can be quite an imposition. And he obviously feels this because he kneels on the threshold. Now, this wooden threshold that, um, that that's mentioned here is the wooden, the piece of wood that is underneath the door and it kind of holds the carpet in place. And kneeling on that would be really, really, really hard and really sore on your knees. So why would he put himself in a position where he's causing himself physical pain? So within the Catholic religion, there's this idea of penance, which means that you you do something, you put yourself out, you maybe make yourself feel quite uncomfortable to kind of gain forgiveness for your sins. So, you know, this is the first time that we, we start to get an idea of maybe, maybe the relationship between him and his aunt wasn't a good one. Because is he welcome? As it says here, he, uh, he edges in, he edged them forward onto the carpet. So he starts to try and encroach into the room. But even though he's family, he's not right there next to her bed. He's keeping his distance. And that's something incredibly important to keep your mind on. The aunt in bed, they, they say they tried to wrap her fingers around a crucifix, but they kept loosening. So the crucifix, if you're not, if you're not too sure what that is, is, is a cross with a depiction of, of Jesus on it. And she, um, she can't keep hold of it her hands keep loosening. Now there's a couple of interpretations of this that we can have a look at. I mean, death is imminent. She's weak, she's not, um, she, she's not aware of what she's doing. So it, it could just mean about her physical frailty. Alternatively, could it be um, an illustration of her beliefs or maybe her lack of beliefs? I mean, when we're looking at when this story was written, it's 1977, okay? If you were in either Ireland or even Glasgow at this point, going to mass and going to church if you're a Catholic was the expected thing for you to do. You, you, didn't, you don't question your beliefs, you don't question your religion, but the fact that the crucifix is slipping away from her could imply, it could infer that actually her belief is slipping too. So she's there in her bed, her friends and family are praying around her. Hail Mary, full of grace. We can, we can see that potentially they're praying the rosary. Um, but while they're kind of like being quite reverential and praying, we hear that she, the aunt, has lost all dignity. Now, this is quite stark for me because when I think about death, and I think when we when we do think about death, we think of it as being quite quiet, about somebody just slipping away, somebody, you know, moving from 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 being alive to being dead with without it being noticed. But here we realise that actually sometimes death isn't always quiet. We hear that her the aunt was making was a noise deep and guttural, and it became intolerable to him. The boy, the man, couldn't stand it. Um, 
we we also start to get the, the the feeling that this noise and her making any noise is probably incredibly out of character for her. That quotation again, she had lost all the dignity he knew her to have. This is not usual of her. And if we if we look here as well, this comparison that we get of her, they've had to take her dentures out. Imagine if someone's taking your false teeth out as well, you're not exactly going to look majorly presentable, are you? Um, the comparison, though, of how she is while dying to how she was when she was alive, um, the physical differences are really quite stark and really quite apparent. And the mentions here about on the table was a cut glass vase of viruses, um, dying because she had been in bed for over a week. They were withering from the tips inward, scrolling themselves delicately, brown and neat, clearing up after themselves. The dying flowers, which were her favourites, represent her, that even in her death, she has been tidy and almost, you know, self-contained. Um, so the irises are a, a, a very clear, a very clear image of her. Um, we then, on the last line before the little star, it says he stared at them for a long time until he heard the sounds of women weeping from the next room. The star and the weeping um, illustrate that she has died. So when we move into this next part of the story, we can see that there's been a change. We now are seeing him talk about his aunt in the past tense, as opposed to the present tense, which he was doing at the beginning of the story. We get a really clear description of what she was like while alive, her skin fresh, her hair white and waved and always well washed. Um, the, next, the next two things that we see, she wore no jewellery except for the first one, a cameo ring on the third finger of her right hand and around her neck, a gold locket on a chain. So let's first have a look at the cameo ring. So the third finger of the right hand is really important because the third finger on the left hand is your wedding ring finger traditionally. So the fact that she's wearing the ring on her right hand on the ring finger, um, we can infer that she's not married and she has never been married. So she's not a widow. Um, if we want to think about the idea of divorce, we're very clearly seeing that she's a, a, a staunch Catholic lady um, and it is an, it's, a, it's a sin to be divorced within the Catholic Church. So we can infer from that that, yeah, with all the information that we've got, that she's never been married. Um, the locket that she wears, the gold locket, she's, she's literally keeping things close to her chest. If you have a locket, you can obviously put maybe a small picture or something that is a very important to you inside it and keep it shut and keep it locked away. And that links to that theme of secrets as well. Um, moving on, if we have a look at the most famous novels that she was reading to her grandnephew, Lorna Doon, Persuasion, Wuthering Heights. I want you to go and have a look at the plots of those novels and why they then might be really important further on down the line when we start to read a little bit more into her relationship with Brother Beninus and John. Um, the, it's very interesting, I think, though, that her favourite extract, because she reads it so often, is Pip meeting with Miss Havisham from Great Expectations. Now, if you've never read Great Expectations, Miss Havisham is an incredibly famous character. She was jilted at the altar, which means just as she was about to get married, she was in her wedding dress. 
and her husband-to-be decided that he didn't want to marry her. Didn't tell her a week before or a month before, no. He just didn't turn up on the day of their wedding. Firstly, I think that's really such a coward. I mean, why would you do that to somebody? Why would you allow them to get to the point that they're actually at the altar, they're in the church, to then break their heart? So Miss Havisham lives in her wedding dress and Miss Havisham feels incredibly bereaved. Even though her husband-to-be hasn't died, she is feeling a really, really acute loss here. Um, if we, we then find out more about how this ring, this cameo ring on her, uh, on her right hand came to be, um, it was given from one, one woman to another. Um, it was given to her. Her grandmother had given it to her as a brooch and she had had a ring made from it. Um, the boy in the story then starts asking, well, where did she get it from? And who did she then get it from? And where was it? And the and Aunt Mary turns around and says, "How do I know a thing like that?" Um, keeping her place in the closed book with her finger. That closed book. If you say that somebody's a closed book, what does that metaphor mean? If you're not sure, I want you to go and have 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 a look at that, about that. Do some research on that as well. She doesn't answer questions. Um, she answers questions with questions as well as we find on later but she says don't be so inquisitive let's see what happens next in the story she's very non-committal she doesn't want to give too much away so we can infer from this that she's an incredibly private private person she keeps on writing writing is 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 one of her hobbies very obviously who is she writing to why is she writing those are the sorts of questions that you need to be asking again and as we can see, the vase of irises there on the oval table, those irises again mirror the irises that were there at the beginning of the story while she was there on her deathbed. When she gets up from the table, she takes a small wallet of keys uh, from, the shelf in the book uh, from a shelf in the bookcase and selects one for the lock. So she has this writing bureau that's locked and she has got a wallet of keys. Now, keys, plural, obviously there's more than one. So she's very used to locking things away. And it's quite interesting enough, the fact that she lives in a house with family. Why would she feel the need to lock things away? So obviously if things are locked away, they're quite secret. I just want to ask you, do you have anything that you have locked away? Maybe you've got a diary that you can, that you can lock with a key or there's a padlock maybe for a bag or for a case that you don't want people to get into. So think about the implications, think about the inferences there as to when something is locked, what does that show? Um, we see that the, um, when the when the bureau is opened, there was a harsh metal shearing sound as she pulled the desk flap down. The the desk then is almost personified here, giving a warning, a, a, a literal warning, um, a noise is emitted when somebody tries to get in. Almost maybe like an alarm. Um we, we look at the postcards that she then she then gives over. Torchlight processions at Lourdes, again. Do your research on why Lourdes would be such an important place for somebody of the Catholic faith. She has postcards from Spain, from France, from Germany, so many countries. So where did she get these from? Who has sent her these postcards?
we get a really clear sense of how calm the room is that she lives in, uh, in terms of the silence and how the noise from the main road was distant and muted. Um, the steam even gushed quietly from the spout. Um, so it's, it's a very calm, calm atmosphere, which contrasts with the, with the explosive reaction that she has to him discovering the letters later on within the story. It's here now as well that we get the first mention of Brother Beninus. So Brother Beninus um, would be a Catholic monk, a Catholic religious man. Okay, um, if we think about what the word benign means, kind, gentle, not harmful, and the, the, the irony here is that he is harmful and he has been very harmful to Great Aunt Mary. Um, not in a way that she can be particularly angry about. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's something that I know when we've had discussions about this in class that people get quite, get quite cross about actually when they hear what, what he decided to do. So um, Brother Beninus, um, as, a, as a religious um, person within the Catholic Church, would be single, would be celibate. Um, he has obviously been writing to Mary um, as, as his flourishing signature appeared again and again. But the name that he uses when he signs off his letters does change. So it's Brother Beninus or Bro Beninus, sometimes Beninus and once Iggy. Now, there's, there's something here. If you think about the name that you use and, and what names you call yourself, I mean, obviously, to you, you would call me Mrs. Nixon. Um, that's, that's, that's the kind of obviously like a term of respect. Um, it, it would be very weird, I think, for both you and I if you were to call me Louise or Lulu as a nickname. Wouldn't that be slightly odd? So if I was to meet, for example, a Catholic priest, I would call him Father. Maybe Father and then his surname, but there would be no way that I would call him by his first name. So the fact that he is, um, is, is, is referencing himself just by a single first name is quite interesting. Additionally, when Brother Beninus became Brother Beninus, he took the name Beninus on then. That wasn't the name that his parents gave him when he was born. He was born and was baptised with a different name, but then when he decides to take holy orders, he then takes a different name um, to kind of differentiate the fact that he has moved from one life to another. Um, the, the boy asks, is he alive? And she says, no, he's dead now. Now, I don't know, that raises questions for me. Is he dead? Uh, we get we, we get clues, and when, when on the next page, when she when um, he asks whether her friend was killed in the war, and she says no, and then actually maybe he was, but we're coming into that in a wee bit. Um, but he's dead now. If she's saying that though about Brother Beninus, he probably is, and then she's been able to move on from that. The boy reaches over towards the letters, but before his hand touched them, his aunt's voice. Harsh for once, warned. Ah, ah, ah! She moved her pen from side to side. Do not touch, she said, and smiled. So she's given her warning, but there's obviously something within those letters 
that she doesn't want him to see. And she gives him that warning. She tells him not to do that. And then he pictures, he finds this photograph. Um, he can't connect the girl in the picture with who she is now. I suppose it's, it's, it's always the way, isn't it? You know, if you look at your grandparents, and I can remember um, seeing a picture, the first time I saw a picture of my grandma on her wedding day, just thinking of how absolutely glamorous she was. And I couldn't quite equate the fact that my, my grandma with her, her curly grey hair that was sat in front of me was this absolute bombshell in this picture. And so he has a thing here, but it also, I suppose, implies to us, the reader, that she's not always been this white-haired little old lady. She has had a life beforehand, and it's something that we really can't dismiss. Then we hear about another name. We hear about uh, her friend who is called John. And the boy says, oh, I thought it was maybe Brother Beninus. And she looked at him not answering. Now, that's nothing unusual because she doesn't really answer his questions anyway. As we said, she is an incredibly closed book. But remember what I said about Brother Beninus not being born and named Beninus. He had a different name and then he became um, a, a religious man within the Catholic Church. So when, she's, when he says, was your friend killed in the war? Because he was a soldier. At first she said no, but then she changed her mind. Perhaps he was. So what she's saying is he didn't literally die, but John, that person, he died because he then became Brother Beninus. And she smiled, you're far too inquisitive. Go and see what's for tea. And then she takes the photos and locks them and puts the keys on the shelf. We then cut away to Sunday evening. So the boy is doing his homework and his mother is sitting on the carpet, tidying out the drawers of one of the sideboards. And Aunt Mary comes downstairs impeccably dressed and says that she's walking to devotions. Now, devotions is a service at church that it's not, you don't need to go to it. It's, 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 it's not one that you, you're, you're expected to go to. If you're a Catholic, you should go to Mass every Sunday. It's called your, your, your massive obligation that you should be there once a week um, to receive the Eucharist. So obviously she is going more often than is necessary. What can you infer about her and her attitude to religion here, do you think? When we think about devotions, devotions is when you would offer up your prayers for other people or for other things. She's obviously dressed, as I said incredibly well she's taking pride in her appearance and 10 minutes after she's gone he then takes himself up to her bedroom he knows exactly where the keys are kept but she's not made that a secret he knows where the keys are kept but he also is very aware of the fact that she wants to keep those things private she wants to keep those things secret um but he has decided to break that trust and to and and, and to go and find out what is in the bureau that she doesn't want to see now that's typical of children I think if you you know if you tell a, if you tell a child oh you know don't look in that cupboard well it's the first thing they're going to want to do is to look in the cupboard so he's just potentially satisfying his natural curiosity here but he's old enough to understand that what he's doing isn't right and we should see that moral conscious coming in so he reads her letters 
He carefully opens them, takes them out, they unfolds it, they're frail, khaki coloured. So the paper has discoloured, which shows obviously how old these letters are. Now, there are four letters that we are going to see here. And within these four letters, the story um, of, of, of Mary's life and her heartbreak becomes really apparent. So the first letter, if we look, begins, My Dearest Mary. We've got her name there. She's called the Dearest, and it's My the fact that her that possessive pronoun is there obviously implies that she was potentially in love with somebody and somebody was in love with her. And this is what we find as we are reading through these letters, that they are love letters. Okay, the boy's eyes skip down the page and over onto the next. You read the last paragraph. Mary, I love you as much as ever, more so that I can't, that we cannot be together. I do not know which is worse, the, the hurt of this war or being separated from you. So this man is obviously in love and he sees the sign scribbles of what he took to be John. So the boy then folds that letter up and we now know that Mary was once in a relationship with someone. The second letter starts, my love, again, that possessive pronoun the fact that he is calling her his love. In this letter, they reminisce about the time that they were together. When I get a moment, I, I, I open my memories of you as if I were reading. So while the soldier is in the war, he locks away his memories. He keeps them secret. He keeps them private. Um, and then when he gets time on his own, it's almost as if he opens it again and starts thinking about her. And we know that the relationship here became physical, where I first kissed you and the look of disbelief in your eyes that made me laugh afterwards. And he signs off his letters, I love you, John. So again, we see here that even though that the miles separate them, the love between them still grows. Then the boy doesn't bother to put the letter back into the envelope but opens another. He's obviously desperate to see what happens. Where did this relationship go? Why wasn't she married if this is if this is where the, the, the beginnings of it were? The third letter, my dearest, I live through this experience. If I live through this experience, I will be a different person. The only thing that remains constant is my love for you. Two really important sentences there. The only thing that remains constant is my love for you. That's a lie, because it doesn't remain constant. His love changes, but the line before it is true. If I live through this experience, I will be a different person. And we find out why in letter four. Dearest Mary, that possessive pronoun has been dropped. No longer feels, John no longer feels that Mary belongs to him anymore. I must do something must sacrifice something to make up for the horror of this past year. In some strange way, Christ has spoken to me through the carnage and the boy doesn't get a chance to finish the letter because his aunt disturbs him. But let's have a think about what that letter was showing us. He became injured and while he was in his hospital bed, he made the decision to take holy orders. Now, as I said, within the Catholic Church, if you take holy orders, you stay celibate. What that means is you can't get married. So you can't be married and be a monk or a priest at the same time. You have to choose one or the other. 
and he chose the religious life. But by him choosing the religious life, he's also made that choice for Mary. He's made the choice by taking holy orders, by taking that sacrament, that Mary will then no longer get to take the sacrament of marriage, at least not with him. Now it's really difficult because the man that she loves, the man that she is in love with, is still alive. He's still there and he's in constant contact with her. All those postcards signed Brother Beninus, he is not letting her go. It might have been kinder had he died in the war. People are only going to look at him and if we think about what it, was, what it would have been like in Ireland at this time, to have a priest or a nun in the family is almost like that badge of honour. It's like, oh, my son's a priest or my, 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 daughter's, my daughter's taken holy orders. So people would have been incredibly proud of John for taking holy orders. It's, where does she then, as Mary, where does she then get to vent and let out her feelings of frustration that the man that she has loved has made the decision? She's had no choice in this matter, that she has, take, she's, she has to stand back and be proud of him too. So it's, it's an incredibly complex situation incredibly complex. Now, as we see, the boy tries to shove everything back into the bureau and the brass screeched loudly and clicked shut. And at that moment, his aunt came into the room. Even if she wasn't at the door when, when she came in, she would have heard the bureau. As we said before, that noise there, it's almost like that alarm call. We see a huge change in her here as well. When she says, you are dirt she hissed and always will be dirt i shall remember this till the day i die so talking about dirt ashes to ashes dust to dust when you go back to the dirt you go back to the earth when you die you're saying somebody is dirt they're the lowest of the low and she repeats the word dirt twice to give that emphasis there in fact, as well, she doesn't say it, she hisses it. So you can see the venom, you can hear it through the onomatopoeia there. Um, the day I die, she is going to keep this grudge. She is not going to let go, she will not forgive him. And we move on to that feeling about and that, that, that idea of forgiveness. Now, forgiveness within the Catholic Church is, 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 is a really, really important concept. It's really something that, as, that every Catholic really should aspire to, is to be able to forgive no matter how badly somebody has treated you or no matter what they've, what they've done to you, you should be able to forgive them. And considering that the aunt seems so devout by going to devotions as well as going to Sunday Mass and going to Mass regularly and, and, and praying and, and, and living a good life, she's, she's refusing to forgive him. So she's not doing, she's not practicing what she preaches. So she might be going through the, the motions of going to church and on the outside looking like she's this very religious, very devout person but actually on the inside she's here anything but and the same thing could be said for brother Beninus as well if we think about it on the outside this very um, devoutly religious person but on the inside he's still kind of like trying trying to keep her to, to keep her close not letting her go not willing to cut the ties that he has with her um, very finally even though it was a warm evening we move back to the present time when the um when his mother is clearing out Aunt Mary's stuff. 
so the room could be his study. So he's actually going to move into where she was and she is going through the letters and throwing them into the fire, into the fire, into the fire. He asks his mum then, who is Brother Beninus? And his mother stopped sorting and said, I don't know. Your aunt kept herself very much to herself. She got books from him through the post occasionally. That much I do know. So the books that she read at the beginning, Lorna Doon, Persuasion, Wuthering Heights and Great Expectations, were those books from him. And as I said, you need to go and research what those books are because the those those books they, they they all have they all have something in common and i know that some of you will have read some of those books which is absolutely fantastic but some of those books those those books they have they have something very very particular in common some very central themes that are apparent through all of the books and it'd be very worthwhile please go and find out what those are i could easily tell you now but i don't want you i don't want to because i want you to be able to go and find it out and make those links yourselves um so she doesn't know your aunt keep yourself very much to herself and she throws the letters into the fire so they are no longer mama he said yes did aunt mary say anything about me what do you mean before she died did she say anything not that i know of the poor thing was too far gone to speak god rest her she went on burning lifting the corners of the letters with a poker to let the flames underneath them when he felt a hardness in his throat, he put his head down on the books. Tears came into his eyes for the first time since she had died, and he cried silently into the crook of his arm for the woman who had been his maiden aunt, his teller of tales, that she might forgive him. So even after her death, he still wants forgiveness. He is still guilty. And we've got this allusion here to the Virgin, the Virgin Mary, who Catholics um, will pray to, will pray to for guidance and for help and for forgiveness and so the fact that she he's still praying to her after her death and asking for her forgiveness after her death kind of almost puts her on this pedestal as this as almost as if she is a saint so there you go that's secrets um analyzed if you have got any questions about the story um then please either uh, send me a voice message on here and we can include you in our q a's or if you want to drop me an email then the uh, my email address is on the notes page that accompanies this podcast um and you can find that in our microsoft teams group um absolutely fantastic okay and i will speak to you soon <laughs>